Well, good morning, everybody. It's great uh, to be here. We've been here now for, I lost track of the weeks, but it's been long enough that hopefully it's starting to feel a little more normal to everybody. And um, we're just grateful that the Lord's going before us, opening up. I'll give some announcements uh, at the end just about how things are going with the building and the property. But it's pretty exciting for us to be entering a new chapter and a new season, and we're glad you're with us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our scripture this morning. Lord, we're grateful to have a place to worship. We're grateful to live in a country where we can do this in a public setting. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this community of believers, and we are thankful that you have saved us, Lord. And today, as we study through Luke 7, I ask that you would renew within us the joy of our salvation, that we would grow in our appreciation for what you've done for us, and that we would embrace the offer that you give us for life in the kingdom now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the way we'll do it, uh, we've got up on the screen, and I'll do the same way where I'll just go through. You also, I printed out about 25 sheets there in the back there if you want to look at the scriptures. And if you don't want to look up at the screen, that's fine. And then I just bring my Bible, and you're welcome to use your phone um, as well. It's mainly, when I do it, I generally will stay in the passage that we're in. I have a few references that I'll do, particularly the Old Testament, when they're touched on, and I'll go back into those. And then if you have questions, I have it all written down. What I do is I, I take that slide, I put it down, and then I write my notes underneath it. I've had people come up. You, you're welcome. I had someone come up last time and ask what the reference was. And usually I have it here. So that's how we'll go. This should be um, just a basis for this week, hopefully, some things you'll study and you'll meditate on. So we've been doing Luke. We've been going through, starting with around chapter 3, which is where John the Baptist comes into the picture. We skipped the Beatitudes. Uh, Mark had taught on that, but also when I travel, I get invited to teach on the kingdom, and the Beatitudes is the main thing I teach. And one of my main examples is the middle school cafeteria. So I do want to teach that, but I kind of want to wait till summer's over because I'm only going to do it once. So I'll probably do that in the fall. It's, I've never gotten to teach it in all the places I've taught it for 20 some 20 years. I've never been actually in a middle school cafeteria to do it. So I'm we skipped over because of that uh, chapter six, and that'll be later in the fall. So now we're into uh, Luke seven, and it's it's a passage that that to me it it opens up my eyes to the human side of what it meant to follow Jesus and the limit of our knowledge. So it starts out where we have, uh, we have John the Baptist and John's disciples report to him all these things. And what were some of those things? They were from the chapter before. And one of the last things was the raising of the widow's son in Nain. A lot of what happens for Jesus happens in this region of Galilee. There are not large towns where they're from. Remember, Nazareth is kind of out of the way. It was a hassle to walk up to it. They were by this long thoroughfare, so international trade was going on, but they usually had to come down from Nazareth. So as they came to places like Nain, 
there, everybody from Nazareth had probably been to Nain, but not everybody from Nain may have gone up to Nazareth. Does that make sense? So Nazareth was definitely out of the way, and you could just stay up there as a hermit if you wanted to, but if anything, you want to have anything happen, you had to go down, and Nain was one of those places. And so they're crossing through, and uh, they run into, there's two different groups, um, and Jesus ruins the funeral. That's all I can say, he ruins the funeral. So word got out about that, um, don't invite him. He'll ruin it. So words around, that's one of the things that the disciples had saw, seen. And so they report that to him. And then John calls two of his disciples, and he sends them to Jesus to ask this question, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So there's, there's two different interpretations, as I studied it, as to what, why John did this. Okay, so I'm going to give them to you, and you can decide. And smarter people than myself have chosen the one I'm not choosing. So I'll let you decide. But we've got to realize John's in prison, which I doubt was his plan. So he's in prison, and try to think about what that was like for him. I don't know how um, we went up to New York. I love being outside. The New York subway just about stretched the edge of my sanctification, being under there. So other people, it was normal. They were listening to their music, and they were having a great time. Shunk, 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 the trains. You know, I got a migraine. I was like, that? I was, it was tested everything, that, all my Christian maturity right there to make it through. I don't like that. I like being outside. So John is clearly an outdoor kind of person. He would have been um, great on the show alone or survival. I mean, he just, he, he liked that. And so to be in prison was tough. You guys uh, know what it's like when you just get put in a spot where it's not really your strength or your, your environment. So imagine John is in that. And also note that he still has disciples. So there are people who are still gathering around John. He has some permission, obviously, for them to speak to him. So he's, got, he's not in solitary confinement where no one can talk to him. So he imagine what the prison's like. Um, best you can, probably, you know, underground. Um, he, people are coming and going. There were probably some, even among the people keeping him captive, who respected him and maybe were went out of the way to be kind. And then people could come talk to him, obviously. So he wasn't completely alone. He had some news of the outside world. And then there's the two reasons I was telling you about. One is that one, one thought is that John sends his disciples to Jesus so that they will connect to Jesus. John may have realized that there's only two options ahead for him. One is long-term imprisonment, and the other is potentially death. So just like Jesus cares for his disciples, and particularly his mother when he's on the cross, some would say this is John sending his disciples to connect with Jesus, and the big question that they would have had was, are you the coming one? So some would argue he doesn't question it. He doesn't doubt, but he realizes that's the disciples, his disciples' question. So he sends them to get answers for themselves. As any good teacher knows, um, if a student can come to their own conclusion, it's better than you telling them. So one argument is that's what's going on. A second one is that that John doubted. He, was, he wanted the answer to the question himself. And so that's the side I'm going to pick. I'm, I'm fine if I'm wrong. And some of my reasoning is he doesn't send all his disciples. He just sends two. 
So I think if he were really trying to get all the disciples on board, why not send them all? It seems like he's definitely sending two to get answers to a question. Also, uh, Luke, remember Luke is, is painting this picture of how what happens with Jesus is not like a stop-start from the Old Testament. It's a continuation. And so he, he works hard to tie in the scriptures and also the key prophets. So remember when Jesus even stands up and he talks about Elijah and Elisha. And remember with Elijah, he has this tremendous like battle with the, with the, uh, at Mount Carmel and he, he takes care of 400 and some odd prophets and everybody's against him. And then shortly thereafter, Jezebel, one woman is mad at him and he's scared and he runs. So I can handle that John, as brave as he was, as outspoken as he was, he too may have had moments of doubt. And I take um, solace in that because as a Jesus follower, I'm a human too. So things can happen to, to push me to doubt. Even the great pillar, John the Baptist, had these moments. Elijah did too. And I shouldn't be discouraged if I see someone who's I see as more mature in the faith having a hard go. You know, that was tough for me when I first became a believer. When I saw people maybe, you know, 10 years older than me, 10 years further in the faith, really struggling, you know, and I thought, is, is it my faith in doubt? And, and I think this is in here to show us that even great pillars of the faith have moments that are hard. So if you do too, that's perfectly fine. And then there's this, this coming one idea. And so I'm going to pick it up from the Old Testament, this phrase, the coming one. What could it mean? He doesn't uh, tell us exactly. John doesn't say the verse and, and reference to his disciples. It, it was, uh, and the best I could do was try to figure out which, I picked a couple of them that I think it could be, and you may find other ones as well, because it's not outlined in the scripture. But keep in mind, um, and I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, last couple times I was up or not, but the scripture is something they would have memorized, and I wish scripture was something that our culture memorized, but if I want to make a reference that people will catch, um, movies will usually do it. Like there's certain lines I could say from a certain movie, and you guys would know the next line. You might be embarrassed as to how many of those you know because of the time involved to accumulate that knowledge. But I could throw out a few, and I'm not going because it would get us down the rabbit trail. Um, I was teaching all week to teenagers in Mexico last week, and I would mention anything like this, and they would all start talking and running in a different direction. Finally, I had to get the tennis racket out and say, lobby it back to me, you know, because I bounce an idea to them, and they would talk about it, and then I'd have to wave the tennis racket, and then they would hit the idea back and keep going. But think of a movie that you would know the quote to, and if I started it, you would know the rest of it. That is similar to how they knew the scripture. So um, like the most famous one for me is on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have all known Psalm 22. So there are phrases that, that catch, you know, coming one would be one of them. That to us, it may not jump out to us, but to students of the Old Testament, Pharisees, everybody, that phrase would have triggered a certain number of voices or references, just like the movie references that might be in your mind. So it may have, and I don't know this for sure, gone, taken them back to Psalm 118, 
where it talks about um, it talks about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we hear that one again, the coming one, one who comes in the name of the Lord at the triumph, the triumphal entry. Okay, so that one definitely comes out in Matthew. That's why I feel comfortable saying that might be one of them. But again, the when Jesus uh, references the scripture, some of the joy of, of when the Old Testament passages are referenced, then we have uh, a real reason to go back and dig around there because sometimes there's other gold right by there. And so the coming one where it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a couple verses ahead or above it, it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. So as these references are made, the broader scope of the passage would have been brought to mind that, um, hey, this, this stone the builder rejected, they may not have known what to do with that. And as, as, as you think about what the concepts of a Messiah was, those, those um, thoughts of rejection or a stone being rejected would have been uh, inconsistent with the idea of the Messiah that most of them had in mind. So the coming one could be that, Psalm 18. And then there's another one uh, in Habakkuk, which we'll look at a little bit later. And then the one in Malachi 3, which then Jesus picks up in a few verses that we're going to look about, you know, sending a message, messenger before his face. So there are a couple ideas of this coming one. And when you think of Jesus, do you think of him as the coming one? Do you, do you really envision him showing up? Um, do you envision him showing up maybe one day in your kingdom that you're ruling and reigning over right now? And what would that be like if he came in this Sunday afternoon and wanted to sit down with you and talk about how it's all going? Do we see ourselves as someone that has a coming one that's coming into our kingdom and we're going to have to give account as, um, you know, we know from one day we're going to stand before the Lord, not in a punitive way, but it's good to be aware that no matter how independent we feel, no matter how much in charge of our own little realms that we feel, we have someone who's coming to settle accounts and review how we did. Uh, the passage of the parable of the talents is a, best, a good one to keep in mind that we will one day need to just explain to God what we did with what you gave us. There is a coming one into my life that is going to, to speak to me about how I handled it. And it's good to keep that in mind that we too have this, this coming one that's coming. So um, we'll see if this guy works. Okay. So the next up, you know, the, the disciples come. And, uh, and he says, uh, he tells them, let's see, I skipped it, yeah. So when they come, he decides to give them some evidence. John the Baptist said, you're coming one, and he points out these things. And at that very hour, so current to that, you, you have Jesus doing all these things of curing infirmities and afflictions and evil spirits, and to many of the blind he gave sight. That was a crazy scene. It must have been just absolutely nuts. I mean, think about, I, I'm colorblind. So if, if we were out in a beautiful spring day in a garden and I suddenly could see color, I doubt I would be silent. I would be, did you see that? Look at that. Look at this. And to you, it would have been, well, that's what hydrangeas look like. I mean, they're that color. But to me, I would be all excited. Imagine if you were blind and you were looking at everything for the first time. You know, imagine what that would be like. The, 
seeing a rainbow, seeing, seeing anything, seeing a human face. They would, just the blind people alone, would have been going around and talking and, and their friends excited. So this must have been a crazy scene. And rather than even answer the question, he just points to what's happening. So it's important to note, too, that sometimes that's not even enough um, for people. So he goes and, and he, says, uh, he says, go and tell John what you've seen. And he repeats those things. The blind are seeing and the lame are walking. The leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear. Imagine what it would be like to hear music for the first time. Just imagine what that would be like. The dead are raised. So you said goodbye to someone forever, it seemed. And then they're at the dinner table. What would that be like? What would that be like? So, and then the poor have the good, the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who's not offended because of me. So, there's a lot of evidence out there. Um, one of the things that might have been hard for John is you remember when Jesus stood up in, in the synagogue, he reads from Isaiah 61, and twice he talks about captives set free, right, right there in one verse. John's in prison. So, you could see John thinking, all the captives? Was that an all-inclusive captive release thing? Because uh, I'm still seeing bars right here. And then the other thing that John had said was that Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Like, where's the fire part? You know, they might have, remember the disciples come back later and they, um, they were, there was a town or group that didn't accept them. Do you remember what the disciples said to Jesus? Hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these guys? So there was an expectation of some sort of zapping going on. You know that Jesus was going to deal with it because you remember the story of Elisha when they come to get him and two troops of 50 get consumed at the top of this hill. So they're thinking if this guy's greater than Elisha, we expect some groups or individuals to be zapped, right? I mean, and maybe just whole groups of people you might have had on your list of zapping that you would think surely a Messiah in his right mind would come and zap this group. I've got a few suggestions you might be saying, you know, where we can start or give the power to me and I'll take care of it uh, for you. Jesus isn't doing that. So you can understand if you take the position that I took that John is actually doubting how it didn't quite seem like what he expected when he baptized Jesus the, right in Luke 3, right? Baptize him. He expected certain things to happen and they're not happening. And so Habakkuk talks about 316, the one I had mentioned about the coming one, and the coming one was going to invade with his troops. And that's not happening. And Isaiah 61, I had pointed out that Jesus stops just short of this one verse that says um, the day of vengeance of our Lord. So they would have expected some taking care of business, and it just wasn't happening. When he talked about not being offended, I tried to really think through some what could have offended people in that day, and then I carried it forward into what could offend in this day or us. And so I'm going to put some of those out there. And I, and I read um, Spurgeon helped me with some of this. I look at some of his old sermons, so some of these got me going um, from him. But one of them was, why would you be offended with Jesus? One of them was probably his humble appearance. 
if you were expecting this Messiah, this King David, you might have been a little put off by his appearance. I'll give you an even simpler thing. You might have been put off by his accent because he probably had an accent from Nazareth. And we know he's in G Egypt, so he might have had a few words or sayings that were influenced by that, but he grew up in Nazareth. So you remember uh, his, the Galilean accent was quite notable because that's how they picked out Peter. So Jesus did not have, so imagine if you thought the Messiah was coming from Georgia and he's speaking with a New York accent. Hey, you, would you like to pay for that? Hey, I'm talking to you. Are you listening to me? I'm saying, hey, blessed be the poor in spirit here. You know, would that mess you up? Think about it. You're like, the, the, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. I would expect, he's two miles from Jerusalem, I would expect a certain kind of accent. He probably didn't have that accent. So what could have offended people? It just, it could be simple things. I mean, people, we're humans, right? You could be talking to somebody, it might be their hair that's messing you up. I don't know how many people I throw off because I have red hair. I don't know. But there are things that could throw you off or slightly just cadence, anything that could throw you off. So people could have been offended by very simple things like that. They could have been offended by his few followers. If he really were this Messiah, why were so few of the leaders gathering around him? And these guys that he's chosen, they don't seem to be the top of the class. You know, so what, what the followers might have thrown him off. The claims that he makes, the grand claims that he makes, that pretty early, you know, talking about being able to forgive sins, that might have really offended you. It was too easy. You watched him forgive people as the Gospels go on. It seems like he's forgiving people a little too easily. Tax collectors, the sinful woman. You know, shouldn't you make them go through some sort of class or something for eight weeks before we say they've repented? And that might be too easy. That could have offended you. I mean, if you had, um, you remember the temple, the, the, the renewed temple had only been around for a couple decades and it was still being worked on. So the enthusiasm for the sacrificial system was probably on the increase. We could be thinking, oh, this is old hat, the temple and all that stuff. It wasn't. And so there could have been a group that we finally have a decent temple. We finally have a place to do these sacrifices where the elaborate dealing with sin we can do that now, and Jesus is making it too easy at a time when we can finally do it the right way. So it could have, that could have offended them. The simplicity of it, the simplicity of follow me, could have offended them. Certainly, you remember when um, Jesus uses the example of Elisha when uh, the, the Syrian commander came, and Elisha tells him to bathe in the Jordan, and the guy's kind of offended. What? I came all this way, just take a bath? I mean, shouldn't he be doing some elaborate thing? No, just go take a bath. Following Jesus may seem too easy, too simple, something that really, you, it should be more than that, than just coming forward and confessing or acknowledging belief. That might have bothered people. And one thing that we know sends them off later is the whole atonement idea. I mean, we're kind of used to it, but if you... Uh, any, any culture 
has its glasses, and they just view things as normal if it's their culture. So they just look at everything as kind of the right way to do. So in some cultures, if you're traveling and you need to sleep somewhere, you just lay down on the floor, and that's fine. But in America, we've been taught the floor is what? Dirty, so we're not supposed to do it. We are really into platforms. We have, we'll spend a lot of energy getting ourselves like two feet off the floor. And we think that's normal and that everyone should do that, but other cultures don't see the floor the same way as you do. So culturally, this might, this one, if you're looking from the outside of Christianity, when we celebrate communion, that's just flat out weird to people. I mean, the whole idea of eating the body, drinking the blood, that is pretty intense stuff. And when that starts happening, when Jesus starts explaining that, we know people drop off. So the atonement alone is probably the biggest thing, I would think, that offended people back in the day. And, and like I said, as Jesus followers, you may be used to it, but that is pretty extreme what happens, that the blood of Christ is what is atoned. It's, it seems... Um, you know, like I said, it's hard for us to, to, to think of not thinking of that, but just try to put yourself there. When you, you know, you've gone through this whole sacrificial system and the animals were sacrificed, but now you're talking about the human blood here? I mean, th there would have been some trouble understanding it, and I'm not sure I would have been quick to go along with it myself. So another question is just um, what, what is today, you know, what might be causing us um, people in this culture or people have been following Jesus for a while to get a little offended with Jesus. One of them might be just the excitement's worn off. You know, if you became a believer like I did, at, you know, at, at, as a young adult, you become a believer and all these things happen and things are, you know, old sin is gone and your, you know, new interest in life and your life has this purpose. And then maybe after a couple of years, you lose some of that excitement and that may be turning you away from Jesus a little bit. You might have thought you'd always have been happy, and you find yourself in a situation like John is in prison to either a situation or a health thing or a relational thing or economic thing, and it doesn't seem to be going away this moment. That may be causing you offense. You might be disappointed in your transformation. You know, you if you were like me, like the first couple weeks of following Jesus, all these changes went on in my life, and what I thought about, what I spoke, how I lived. And then I was surprised how many of some of the ingrained things stuck with me for years. And I thought he was going to zap me and take care of all of it. And then you'll find something come up in a new season of life and go, oh, wow, I still have that tendency within me. And there could be disappointment. You might be offended at Jesus for not uh, dealing with that. So there's a lot of reasons we may be offended, and those are things we need to bring before the Lord and just ask, is there anything that's offending, that's getting in between me and the Lord? So um, the messengers go back. Um, once they leave, Jesus talks about them a little bit. Imagine a kid explaining John the Baptist. Probably would have talked about kind of how wild-looking he was. So this is what a kid would have said, a reed shaking in the wind a man clothed in crazy garments, you know, that's probably what would you said, would have said. And uh, Jesus is just pointing out that's not really what it was all about. Um, a prophet, yep, that's what you went to see. And he is the one whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before, um, before my face. And so 
before your face. Sorry about that. And when you think of more than a prophet, first I want you to think about what it would be like to be John and know that a section of Scripture was written just about you. Imagine that would be like, you know, that this little portion of Scripture was written about Joe Smith or somebody right here in our congregation. How awesome that would have been uh, to know that. And certainly um, the purpose idea, you know, this messenger. We want to have purpose in our lives. Imagine if your purpose were to prepare the way for the Lord and how engaging that would have been for John. But now he's in prison, and what's his purpose now? And you, any one of us can be in a situation where we're in this season of purpose, 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 purpose. We don't even have to think about it. We just go, go, go. And then all of a sudden, we're kind of in the version of this jail cell where we don't have that purpose, either for the day, the week, or the season. And it can be very, very discouraging. You're just, you didn't realize how much you had gotten attached to that greater thing that got you out of bed in the morning, and we don't have it. And Jesus reminds us that no, there's no greater human out there than John the Baptist. I mean, this is also a very big compliment. Among those born of women, there's no greater prophet than John. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I don't really know exactly what that means, but so these are just guesses. Uh, John didn't have as full of understanding as we do. And then when Jesus talks about, unless I go away, the comforter doesn't come, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us was something that after Jesus left is available to us. And when we live in the kingdom, we have access to things that John did not have access to. I think that's what he's talking about. Um, if we can draw on some of that joy of life in the kingdom, I think it would help us. I appreciate a lot about being a human. I don't like the way so easily good things become normal and you just accept them as normal and then you're kind of ready for the next thing. That's a little discouraging to me. I mean, why can't I be a little more excited about you know something that I entered my kingdom a couple months ago or a couple years ago? We tend to look to the next thing uh, too much. But I would hope I could grow in my ability to just appreciate what I have on just this day is greater than John the Baptist had available to him his whole life. So I, I think that's what it means, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And so people rejoice. Um, the ones who went and baptized by John, the Pharisees do not. Uh, Luke does this often, and when I do the Beatitudes, I'll show it. In order to include everybody, he... Uh, he often takes the bottom and the top. So uh, when Jesus, he has Jesus reference Elijah and the widow, she was on the bottom. The Syrian commander was on the top. I think it's his way of including everybody in between. So when he mentions the tax collectors, he's kind of using it as they're on the bottom of the most sinner scale and, and everyone in between. But the Pharisees, they don't go along with it. Um, I want to be careful that I don't become someone like a Pharisee who just knows too much. I remember, I didn't check this out, I just remember hearing years ago, so it may not be true, but um, a quote associated with Billy Graham in one of his earlier, uh, earliest campaigns. At the end, he was, he was asking some of the people that were there still, uh, he asked this one gentleman if he wanted to confess Christ, and the man said, I'll have you know, sir, that I am a deacon in this church and Billy Graham said, well, don't let that get in the way, you know. So I don't want to get in the way just because I've been doing this for a while. So, um, so then there's this saying, which is another one, that we don't know exactly what it means. 
remember I talked about uh, sayings, and they're really important in transferring knowledge. Uh, we have lots of them. Don't let the cat out of the bag. You know, different things that, as we teach kids. We use a lot of sayings. That's a human thing. And so there were a lot of sayings back then that we may not, uh, you know, regularly associate with. But this is one of them. And so he's talking about this idea of playing music. You know, played happy music, didn't dance. We played sad music, didn't you didn't weep. And two interpretations I picked up on this. One of them is, this is Jesus saying, no matter what we do, you're not going to respond. You're just cold-hearted. You're shut down. If it's happy, you're not going to do that. If it's sad, you're not going to join in. Another one is a little more complicated, but if you remember being in like fifth or sixth grade at the pool or something, and you were kind of on the edge of a social group, and there was kind of a powers that be group that just wanted to get you to do something, and they'd talk you into doing it one way, and they couldn't get you to move out, because in both these cases, it seems like uh, the we played the flute, they're sitting there playing the flute, they're not dancing. You know, trying to get the other person to get up, and we mourned. That's a little more of a stretch, but you try to remember what it was like to be a fifth or sixth grader when a group was trying to get you to do something, so you'd get out there and make a fool of yourself or something. And if they tried one route that didn't do it, they'd try the other route to try to manipulate you. I don't know if it's drawing back if you re you remember those kind of things, but it could be Jesus saying, "This is the Pharisees, you know, doing something and trying us to get to react a certain way." I'm not sure on this one. I see benefits of both ways of looking at it, but but one of them that I, that struck me is um, there's music playing in our culture. Every culture is playing music that they're trying to get us to respond to. And so, as Jesus followers, I don't know. We got to think about before we get up and dance. Um, and one of them that I've picked up is our culture really likes, if someone's got a certain kind of opinion, we like to catch them actually doing something contradictory to it and then point it out and say, oh, see that? He doesn't really believe it because I got this picture of him doing this. You know, So that is music our culture plays. We like to look at everyone else and try to hold them to that. If they don't, we're like, look, he's not the real thing. He says this publicly, but he does this. Well, that's music that I don't know that we need to jump on. And, and we're going to have more of that as elections come up. There'll be more of that music playing. So when you're aware of it, I think that's more what Jesus is saying. But again, I'll leave that to you to decide. So then wrapping up, this is the fun part. I think it's fun, not sure, about doing passages. Because you hit different things that you would probably just as soon skip. But you got to talk with them. So this is an alcohol passage. And so I'm going to talk about it. And so you've got Jesus saying, you know, talks about how John the Baptist um, didn't come eating or drinking wine. But you say he has a demon. The son of man comes drinking and eating. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. Wisdom is justified by all her children. So we're going to talk about the wisdom thing at the end. And I don't quite know how to bring this one up, but um, we talked about in Acts 15 a couple months ago when they had to decide how to include the Gentiles, and, and they went through this process of not passing burdens down. Um, like I said, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I didn't um, grow up in some of the conservative circles that many of you did. I would say there were things that I didn't know. I mean, just in a phrase, I was more comfortable in a pub than like at a potluck, knowing what to do culturally. That was more me. So um, 
I didn't realize that the alcohol thing was such a big deal in conservative Christianity right away. And so um, it was pretty normal in my, my realm. My dad had a rule, don't take the last one. So I remember preferring to have a Coke than a beer in the fridge, you know. So it wasn't as, but it was a bigger thing for some. And it, it's a difficult issue because I know there are addictions and, and there are pe reasons that people don't do it. I also came into Christianity and I went to seminary and I, um, I was really excited because they were saying, you know, only scripture and there was this, don't, don't teach doctrines of men. You know, you really let the scripture speak for itself. And, and there was this one of the first verses I memorized was every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put trust in him. Do not add to his words. And so I took that and I looked at some of just the way Christians and churches had started to add tradition and ways of thinking into the scripture. And I, th I thought, I'm finally in a seminary. We're going to eradicate all that. We're only going to do the word. And then we got to this um, word for wine. And I remember sitting in the fifth row of this class, and they told me that the wine was unfermented grape juice. And I thought, okay, um, what about when it says, do not get drunk on much wine? Same word, it's tough to get drunk on grape juice. So I remember thinking, what's going on here? I've just been through four weeks of class, and they're all about the scripture, and now I don't see consistency here. And um, we had done the wedding at Cana, and I had just been the president of the rugby team. I bought my fair share of kegs. So when they did that one, I knew what he was talking about, because we used to buy the Heineken first and serve the Blatts after everybody was drunk. So I rolled the kegs, like I knew that. So the whole wedding at Cana, I'm thinking, there is no way this is not alcohol. And so we've got to decide what we do going forward. There are good reasons. You can come up and talk to me afterwards for why some people don't drink alcohol. But I, think, um, I don't think there's a scriptural basis for saying that Jesus never touched a drop. So what does that mean for us? Um, we, I would like to be comfortable if we go out downtown and someone's sitting and having a beer or someone has alcohol in their home that we can handle it. And if we think differently, then maybe we can share it, maybe we don't. But I'm hoping that we can manage those kind of things where there are different opinions. We are flat out going to have them. And if we didn't pick that up during the pandemic, you're not going to pick it up. We're going to have to figure out how to think differently and sit next to somebody and worship God. So that's one of these things. He got accused of being a wine bibber. I've, I've been to parties where I just drank Sprite. You have something in your cup, but everybody who's drinking knew I wasn't drinking. Because when they get up and say, I'm going to the cooler, do you want one? That's when they know who's drinking and who's not drinking. It's just flat out the way it is. They knew Jesus had alcohol. And then was he drunk? I don't think so. But um, they're accusing him of it. I doubt they could have accused him if he didn't have a glass in front of him. So wisdom is what you do with that. Wisdom is justified by your children. If there's a freedom to have alcohol and you don't know what drunk is, come tell me. Talk to me and I will tell you. Because I have this distinct memory of a party in the fraternity and Friday night I was at the University of Richmond and waking up at like 7.30 Sunday morning with a knock on the door, and my cousin with his little kids were there, and I had promised to go to King's Dominion with them. 
I did not make it past that like ship ride. So I can tell you what it feels like. If even before I was a believer, I knew like if the human body was meant to take that much alcohol, you would not throw up and have a pounding headache. It's just basic. So we got to figure out how to walk through things like that. There's other things we're going to need to walk through as a body with different opinions. But I do want to say, if we're saying what the scripture says, I think there's a hard time pointing out that Jesus never touched alcohol. And you may find different evidence and prove me wrong. But you've got to decide how to live. So wisdom. Wisdom's justified by his children. It's another one of these phrases. And hopefully, we need wisdom. And so um, I'll end with this idea of in this room, there's a lot of collective wisdom. There is wisdom for things that you don't even know about. One, um, Todd, are you in here? I don't know, Todd's here today, but his, his wife, Joy, uh, we had a really bad migraine, and someone showed me this little like herb that you just rub on your temple, and it really helped out. I didn't know there was some little thing you could rub on your forehead that could help. There's a lot of wisdom here, but we got to sh- figure out how to share it. Because justified by his children, I remember we raised our kids in this church. And I remember being at a pool party one time. And we had, I don't know how you guys were. There were moments where we were like up all night. And we, we weren't going for style points when we got here and sat up there. They were lucky to have shoes on sometime. And we were at this pool party. And there, there was um, one of our kids was into the pacifier. It was like a little too long. And this woman that was about my age starts lecturing me on that kid shouldn't have her, but she's going on and on and on about the plug. And I'm thinking, I didn't say it, but my line of thinking was, I know she shouldn't have the plug anymore, but I know who might have a good use for it right now. (laughs) So that was knowledge that wasn't shared in a wise way. Now, I will contrast that um, with Ronnie and Mary Torrance. I saw, I, I didn't warn you. I saw Mary, and I didn't warn you, Mary, but... I think this will be fine. They, um, I got a lot of wisdom from them. I got to be honest. Mary's wisdom, I can always share from up here. Ronnie's is somewhat of a mixed group. is probably not the ideal, but it was still wisdom. So same thing with the past fire. You know, we're trying to deal with it. Uh, Mary comes up and says, well, she won't go down the aisle with it. That was the perspective we needed, you know? Like, we knew, you know? And it turns out that kid didn't need braces anyway. So it wasn't true. But we want to be the kind of body that as we have knowledge, that you share it with love. There's a passage, I don't have time to go into Philippians. Well, Ephesians 4, 5, I may do a sermon on this, speaking the truth in love. The other one in Philippians 1, 9, it says that they may love abound with your knowledge. The older you get, the more knowledge you have. we got to learn how to share it with love or else it's not wisdom. I mean, one of the ones that just, a woman who's pregnant, I've never been pregnant, obviously, and I don't know what it's really like, but you get some of the dumbest things said to you when you're late in your pregnancy. And so imagine you show up to church, you're exhausted, you have two kids, you, you, you know, you're after church, and somebody my age comes up and says, well, get your sleep now, because once that baby comes... You know, and she goes home and said, I was so confused to her husband. I didn't know what to do, but this man came up to me and he told me, I need to sleep more. I never thought of that. I'm going to talk to my two-year-old and say, don't wake up at 5. Stay in your room till 8.30. That man had this brilliant wisdom, and it just set me free. 
right? So let's become the kind of people that know that wisdom is the right application of knowledge and sharing at the right moment. Because if the goal is to bless the person, you got to do it in the way Jesus would do it and in a way they can hear it. Wisdom is justified by her children. May we become the kind of body that is using Jesus' wisdom to help us live the best life possible. May that be part of our light. May we be the kind of people who aren't offended by Jesus, the hard things like the atonement, and not, not shrink back when we need to talk about the sacrificial blood of Christ and putting our faith in him. But also there's great wisdom of just how to speak to one another, just how to speak to one another. And I'm, I'm thankful for all the scripture that gives us this to kind of build off of. That's what we're going to try to do each Sunday morning. Is just come and look at the scripture and see what it can teach us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on. Lord, we do thank you for your scripture. We thank you that you are alive in us, Lord, that your, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. I invite you, Lord, into the presence of our body. May we really consider the the cost of the atonement, the cost that you paid. But Lord, you, you came more for more than just to die for our sins. You came to teach us how to live and live in the kingdom. Dealing with doubt, dealing with offense, dealing with disappointment, dealing with what to do with the knowledge that we have, Lord, we need your help. And so we ask that you would guide us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.